Hello, I'm Donald Robertson of the Plato's Academy Centre, and today I'm going to be discussing how to learn the Socratic method based on an article that I wrote recently, which you can find on Medium and elsewhere online. How to learn the Socratic method, the ancient two-column technique demonstrated by Socrates. Most people have heard of the Socratic method or Socratic questioning, although few realise how that method was originally used by ancient philosophers. I think it would also surprise them to discover that in order to train his students in this method of thinking, Socrates employed a simple diagram and what cognitive therapists today call the two-column method. In this article, I'll explain how similar techniques are used today in cognitive psychotherapy and self-help, how Socrates taught students his original technique, and how I think it could be adapted for modern skills training workshops in the Socratic method. This won't be a comprehensive explanation, therefore, of how to do the Socratic method, as that has several aspects, and it would take a whole book to cover all of them. See Ward Farnsworth's recent book, The Socratic Method, incidentally, for a good introduction. What we will do here, though, is explore how to do a very simple technique, which teaches some of the foundational skills required for the Socratic method. First of all, the two-column method in cognitive therapy. Every day, cognitive therapists around the world use variations of this tried and tested technique with their clients. Typically, a client will have identified an unhealthy or troubling intrusive thought or a deeper belief, which they have agreed to reevaluate collaboratively with their therapist. For example, a depressed client might have the belief, nobody likes me. The therapist would draw two columns on a flip chart, headed evidence for and evidence against, the client is then helped to brainstorm items to put under each column and maybe to rate how good each piece of evidence is, i.e. whether it's strong or weak evidence. By thinking things through more systematically, the client can then be helped to reevaluate and modify some of their own beliefs. Of course, this may have to be repeated several times, perhaps as homework, and it's always combined with many other cognitive and behavioral interventions. Another common variation of this technique used in cognitive therapy is called cost-benefit analysis or pros and cons analysis. This typically involves drawing two columns headed pros and cons respectively. The diagram can then be used to evaluate the pros and cons of holding a certain attitude or belief, such as people must show me respect. However, it can also be used to evaluate the consequences of certain behaviours. For example, it's quite common to have clients suffering from anxiety disorders, such as phobias, list the pros and cons of actually facing their fears, such as a snake phobic touching a real snake. The main con is usually that the anxiety feels highly uncomfortable. The main pro is that if they persevere, they'll probably learn to cope with and perhaps eventually extinguish their anxiety. We also tend to consider whether the consequences are short-term or long-term. For example, the discomfort of facing our fears is short-term, but the benefits are long-term. As the Stoic Cato of Utica used to say, what is difficult to endure is pleasant to remember. Evaluating pros and cons in this way is a common means of building motivation for homework assignments, etc. However, as we'll see, the original Socratic method aimed at modifying our underlying philosophy of life by questioning our deepest values. Written techniques like those seem quite modern, and references to similar exercises in ancient literature are extremely rare. It's therefore quite astounding 
to find Xenophon in his collection of short dialogues known as the Memorabilia Socrates, describing Socrates' use of his own two-column technique during a dialogue with his young student, Euthydemus, not to be confused, incidentally, with the foreign sophist called Euthydemus, after whom Plato's, Plato's dialogue is named. As we'll see, remarkably, a similar teaching method was perhaps still in use by a famous Stoic teacher over four centuries later. Now, Socrates begins by drawing two columns, marked with the Greek letters delta and alpha, which he explains are to stand for dikaiosune, justice, and adikia, or injustice, a cardinal virtue and its opposing vice. In English, it would be like writing J for justice and I for injustice as the headings of our two columns. He then brainstorms a series of examples, lying, deceit, mischief, enslavement, Euthydemus is asked to classify them as just or unjust and sort them into the corresponding columns, which he does quickly and easily as they all appear unjust. Socrates, however, was renowned for encouraging his students to distinguish carefully between appearance and reality. The philosopher proceeds, therefore, to rattle off a series of exceptions, showing ways in which each item on their list could potentially be placed in the opposing column. This can be considered a form of creative brainstorming. Today, we'd normally expect the student to do this, but although he's known for introducing a somewhat student-centered form of learning, Socrates typically thinks up these examples himself and has his partner or student decide whether they're agreeable or not. For example, Euthydemus didn't hesitate to say that deception was unjust, but Socrates asks him whether it is just or unjust for an un un democratically elected general to deceive the enemy during a war. Euthydemus admits that under certain circumstances, such as these, he would have put such items in the just column. Revising his initial definition, therefore, Euthydemus now says that it is unjust for an appointed general to lie to his friends and just for him to lie to his enemies. Socrates continues, though, and provides another apparent exception. Suppose the general sees his army is demoralised and tells them a lie saying that reinforcements are coming and they're on their way. Assuming that doing so is in their interests, Euthydemus admits that even though he's lying to friends, it should be placed in the column for justice. This provides a very clear example of the method by which Socrates would attain a simple definition of a virtue, such as justice from his friends, and then encourage them to continually refine it by bringing various exceptions to their attention. This exercise involves moving items from the unjust to the just column. Doing so implies that our definition of justice, therefore, may have been too narrow. It should include things that previously appeared to be excluded. For instance, sometimes even lying might be considered justified. Now, although he doesn't do so in this dialogue, elsewhere, Socrates may also proceed to show that the definition has become not too narrow, but too broad. All he would have to do, using his two-column technique, would be to ask whether items could be moved in the opposite direction, from the just to the unjust column. For example, if Euthydemus had said that telling the truth was just, he might agree that in some situations it becomes cruel and unjust. For example, if we were to tell a child information we know they're going to be unable to cope with emotionally. This would imply that our initial definition of justice must have been too broad, if it included things that should have been excluded. 
is an excerpt from the memorabilia um, where you can see Socrates doing exactly what I've just described. Socrates, I propose then that we write J in this column and I in that, and then proceed to place under these letters, J and I, what we take to be the works of justice and injustice respectively. Euthydemus. Do so if you think it helps at all. Having written down the letters as he proposed, Socrates went on, lying occurs among men, does it not? Euthydemus. Yes, it does. Socrates, under which heading then are we to put that? Euthydemus, under the heading of injustice, clearly. They discuss some more examples before continuing. Socrates, now suppose a man who has been elected general deceives the enemy when at war. Shall we say that he acts unjustly? Euthydemus, oh no. Socrates, we shall say that his actions are just, shall we not? Euthydemus, certainly. After some more discussion, Socrates proposes that they revise their initial definition of justice. Socrates, then I propose to revise our classification and to say it is just to do such things to enemies that it is unjust to do them to friends. Towards him, one's conduct should be scrupulously honest. Socrates goes on to speak more generally of distinguishing between virtue and vice or the good and the bad. He mentions that he considers the famous inscription outside the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, Know Thyself, to be particularly important advice. Is it not clear, he asks, that through self-knowledge men come to much good, and through self-deception to much harm? He means, among other things, that the self-knowledge that emerges by examining our own assumptions about the nature of wisdom and justice and other such important concepts can be extremely beneficial. By contrast, remaining ignorant about how best to use these concepts can lead us into all sorts of confusion and additional problems in life. That's one of his reasons for using this two-column technique. There's possibly an allusion to this technique or something similar in the satires of Perseus, a contemporary of Seneca, who had studied Stoicism. Uh, Perseus writes, Has philosophy taught you to live a good, upstanding life? Can you tell the true from the specious, alert for the false chink of copper beneath the gold? Have you settled what to aim for and also what to avoid, marking the former list with chalk and the other with charcoal? Now, Perseus appears to be saying that while attending the Stoic school of the philosopher Cornutus, he and his fellow students were taught how to live a good life by distinguishing appearance, the specious, from reality, the true. He also seems to describe making two lists or columns, consisting in what to aim for and what to avoid, or the good and the bad. As this is a poem, he may be speaking metaphorically, although it does sound uncannily as though he's describing more or less the same teaching method used four centuries earlier by Socrates. Now, in my article, I describe specific steps and I, I lay them out for doing a, a modified version of this in group work today. Um, however, I'm not going to uh, try to do that audibly because it's going to be a bit confusing. It's easier if you follow the steps in writing. Um, however, by practicing simple exercises like this one, it's definitely possible to clarify your thinking and improve your reasoning skills. There may also be other therapeutic benefits. Some people find that examining concepts that are connected to upsetting thoughts can reduce the intensity of their negative emotions. For instance, a depressed person who has the belief, I am worthless, might use the two-column approach to examine and revise their definition of what constitutes human worth versus worthlessness. 
And doing that might create what we call cognitive flexibility and possibly reduce the impact of those beliefs. So there may be psychological, emotional benefits to using some of these seemingly philosophical or intellectual techniques. Now, although it's often claimed that Socrates wrote nothing, this is in fact contrary to the testimony of Plato, who says that Socrates wrote a poem or a hymn to Apollo, a paean, and put several tales of Aesop to verse while in prison awaiting execution. These are, of course, lost today, completely lost. More intriguingly, though, Epictetus appears to claim that Socrates used writing as an intellectual exercise to practice his skill at self-examination and analysing concepts when nobody was around with whom he could do philosophy. So in the discourses, Epictetus writes, What then? Did not Socrates write? And who wrote so much? But how? As he could not always have at hand one to argue against uh, his principles or to be argued against in turn, he used to argue with and examine himself. And he was always treating at least some one subject in a practical way. These are the things which a philosopher writes. Epictetus specifically states that although Socrates wrote in this way for his own benefit, he left the writing of dialogues and dissertations to those who were more concerned with appearances than with the care of their own souls. It's tempting to wonder if Socrates therefore used writing as a self-improvement technique, perhaps involving something similar to the two-column exercise described by Xenophon. So I'd be interested to know what you thought of this exercise, uh, and please you can comment on this uh, this podcast. Uh, let us know what you think of the pros and cons of this. Does it make sense? Uh, you may want to look up the article online, and uh, we'll include a link, um, and that'll give you more instructions that you can uh, review. What do you think the main benefits of doing this might be? What are the biggest obstacles you might encounter when you're trying to put this into practice? Uh, would it make more sense to do it as an individual or as part of a group or with a partner? How could you maximise the benefits and overcome the potential obstacles? So I look forward to reading your comments and your feedback. And thanks very much for your time.